0: Uh, 18, Uh, Again, verses 1 through 17. Uh, If you are able, uh, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying... This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to believe, and our lives to follow. All to the honor and glory of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I need to... Um, I feel like I need to... because this week I got confused. Just, just to retrace with you for just a second uh, the steps, or at least some of the steps that Paul has taken... On this second missionary journey, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went from Galatia, think sort of Turkey area, uh, over to Philippi, up in sort of Macedonia, northern Greece. Uh, from there, Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and then Paul, this kind of continuing to sort of follow the Aegean Sea down around. Athens, and Paul went alone to Athens, and then alone to Corinth. And that's where we find Paul in chapter 18. Now, here's the thing about Corinth, though. Um, I guess I've I've never been to Las Vegas. I've never been to San Francisco. So this is all based on, you know, the stories out there. But Las Vegas has to be called Sin City for a reason. Okay, think... Corinth thinks San Francisco meets Las Vegas. So, you know, there's this trend lately. I assume you know about this. In fact, some of you probably do this. Some of you, I will say it, I'm just going to be so bold. Some of you are guilty of this. Um, it's this trend called verbing, which in itself is doing, the, is verbing, right? It's when you take a noun and you give it verb status. The, the classic, the standard example everybody uses these days, everybody says, I was gifted a blank car, a sweater, books. Meanwhile, over on the sideline, the word given, which is a perfectly useful verb, is sitting there going, why have I fallen out of faith? Like, why is everybody gifted things? Why weren't people given things? Like... I'm a perfectly good verb. I'm already a verb. You don't need to take a noun and turn it into a verb and then put it where I belong. Okay, can you tell that's like really gets under my skin? But here's the thing. The Greeks beat you by 2,000 years. They took the noun Corinth, stuck a verb ending on it, and created a word to Corinthianize. It means to live a life of debauchery and licentiousness. That's where Paul is. They've got a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of of love and pleasure and procreation. And that temple employed literally thousands of male and female prostitutes who participated in worship in the temple of Aphrodite. That's where Paul has gone here in chapter 18. He had straight into that world, into that community. You know, this is not exactly the point of the passage, but it does at least uh, make us consider this thought, you know, Christians have long run towards the, the crazy, the difficult, the struggle, and not away from it. Uh, that, that, that might, okay, if you watch the news enough, that might mean something for us should this whole coronavirus thing um, really take off like everybody seems to be afraid that it will but Christians have long run, long been running towards the, the difficult and the, the struggle and the conflict and the trouble, not away from it. and that 's exactly where Paul has gone here in Corinth. And as we've seen his pattern already, we've seen this city after city, where there's a synagogue, his ministry begins in the synagogue, and he does exactly that in verse four. He's there reasoning with the Jews and the, the Greeks, the Gentiles that are, that are partially converted. They're converted enough to be able to come and, and, and worship and meet in uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We're not told exactly, verses 2, 3, 4, the order. Did, did he meet Priscilla and Aquila at the synagogue? And then they became friends, and and he worked with them. Or did he meet with them before the Sabbath day rolled around? Did he did he bump into them? He's walking around town. Hey, look, there's some tent makers here. I make tents. Let me go see, you know how how good they are at their job, and stop in and meet them before the Sabbath. We're not told that precise information. Luke sort of writes it as though he met Priscilla and Aquila before the Sabbath day rolls around. He may, however. Have met them at the synagogue. But what we do know is that Priscilla and Aquila make tents. They're tent makers. They work with leather. Uh, That word today means, you know, we we use the word tent maker to mean a a church planter or a missionary who has like a real job during the week. And he, he pays for his expenses, his lodging, his food, his gas, his travel, you know, whatever out of his own pocket because he's got like a real job and then you know on on nights and weekends he's planting a church and and doing missionary work he's bivocational in other words Paul made tents he worked with leather and so did Priscilla and Aquila so he ended up getting a job with them and and staying with them and working with them, and so he could make money during the week, and then you see that on the Sabbath he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the Greeks. Now, before you get any crazy ideas, I don't know how to make tents, so that's out. But think about Aquila's journey so far. Examine his passport. Let's grab Aquila's passport and open it up. He's Jewish. So ethnically and historically, he's an Israelite. But he's from Pontus, which is Turkey, Asia. For us, it would be modern day Turkey. More recently though, he's come to Corinth from Rome. So Israel, Eastern Mediterranean, North grew up from Pontus. That's where his passport was issued in Asia. But from there, went to Italy and and was living in Rome and then has now come back east to Corinth, to Greece. And Luke tells us why he's there. For that matter, there's a, a Roman historian that records the whole thing for us. It turns out that in 49 A.D., the Emperor Claudius had enough of the Jewish-Christian conflict in Rome. So much so that he just made them all leave. So it appears, and and, and this Roman historian tells us it was because of this guy, Crestus, which you have to assume is a, is a Latin form of the Greek Christos, meaning the Christ. So it appears that what was happening is the Gospel was being proclaimed in Rome. Jews were reading the Old Testament and learning about Jesus and seeing that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. And they would get converted and then that would cause conflict among the Jews in Rome. And it was bad enough that Claudius just finally said, you know what? Every one of you out. Out. I'm just, I'm not putting up with it. Just all of y'all, all all y'all got to leave Rome. You just can't stay here any longer. Think about that for a second. Who's preaching the gospel in Rome? How did this crestus. How did Christ become a source of conflict in Rome? Paul's not there. Paul hadn't been there. Far as we can tell, no apostle has been there. Who is preaching the Gospel in Rome and causing enough trouble that the Roman emperor would say, get out! Probably, these are people who were in Jerusalem back in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. They were Jews back there for Pentecost. They heard the Gospel. They all went back home. And now some of those... You hesitate as a preacher to use this word. I don't mean it. Regular Christian people... Not an apostle. No MDiv from Covenant Seminary, RTS. or They don't have a degree. People converted in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost have now taken the Gospel with them back home to Rome. That's what we want for Grace Covenant, by the way. We want just regular old Grace, Grace Covenant church to cause... Issues for the cause of Christ in Athens. Not Greece, Athens, Alabama. That's exactly what we want for our church. But also think about this from Aquila's point of view. Okay, hold on. So from Pontus, but he moved to Rome and was living there for whatever reason, we aren't told. And then kicked out. Imagine you having to be kicked out of your city because you're Jewish or a Jewish a Jew converted to Christianity you would you'd cry, you know this is this is unfair, this is mean um, this is discrimination you would you would cry every sort of, Legal ramification you could come up with, bring charges against the, 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 the emperor, against the government for forcing you out based on religious belief. You, that's oppressive. You can't do that to me. You might even think, you might even be tempted to think, um, God, just, can we just talk for a second? You see, We're telling people about Jesus. This is the growth of the church, God. This is evangelism. You've called us to do that, God. Why are you letting Him kick us out? Right? We go through conflict like that. And we run the risk of looking at God and going, starting to question your goodness or your wisdom or your power. Or all of them. Or some combination thereof. But did you see what came of Priscilla and Aquila being kicked out of Rome? I mean, if they'd stayed in Rome, we wouldn't have them in Acts 18. We'd know nothing about them. If they'd stayed in Rome, they wouldn't have become part of Paul's missionary team. In fact, they're going to travel with the very next passage... When Paul leaves Corinth, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And they actually participate in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. But that's another Sunday. What are those struggles? What are those conflicts in your life that make you question God's goodness? That make you question His wisdom? That make you question whether He really does love you? But God, you know, if You really loved me, if You really cared, and if You were really all-powerful, You wouldn't let me go through this. Now look, I'm not saying the pain isn't real. I'm not saying the suffering isn't real. I'm not saying the conflict isn't real. I'm just simply reminding you that Romans 8.28 is true. That God's going to use all things. They're all going to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's Aquila's experience. In verse five, things change for Paul. Timothy and Silas uh, arrive, and they apparently come uh, with money. and And go. Here is your afternoon uh, reading. Your Sunday afternoon. You are looking for something to do to spend the Lord's day. Here you go. Uh, Read First Thessalonians. You can read First and Second if you want to. Read First Thessalonians this afternoon uh, and piece together uh, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica and Timothy. It appears that Timothy actually went back to Thessalonica, comes back to Paul here in Corinth, and he's actually bringing money from other churches, quite possibly the church in Thessalonica. They've sent money for Paul because notice things change. He's, he seems to be now occupied with the Word and not occupied with tent making. He seems to be freed from his regular job because he's, got, he's, he's raised support from uh, the church in Thessalonica or Philippi or Berea or all of them. And now uh, he's able to uh, to labor in Gospel ministry without working at least as a tent maker you know it's been Paul's experience it's our experience too but we've seen it's been Paul's experience to get mixed responses to the gospel everywhere he's gone you've you've had, some believed. Some Jews believed. Greeks believed, and some didn't. And sometimes they run him out of town. Sometimes they keep him because there's a. Seems like the, the converts outnumber the 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 revilers or whatever. He he has the same problem here in Corinth. We're told in verse six uh, that some of them opposed and reviled him. In fact, the word reviled is actually the word that gives us the word blaspheme. They're um they're hurling insults at both Paul and at the gospel. They're they're hating both. They're reviling both. They're they're opposed to Paul and they're opposed to the message that Paul brings. In fact, it got so bad that Paul literally shook out his garments at them and said, Look, your blood is on your head. I'm innocent of your blood why can paul claim to be innocent see you and i there may be people there may be situations in our lives when we feel like you know this evangelism thing just isn't going well and and this person is is being difficult and obstinate and they're they're unresponsive And sooner or later, I'm just going to shake out my garments at them and say, you know what, your blood's on your own head. Notice, first of all, Paul has been clear with the Gospel to these Jews. Before we go shaking out our garment, we have to ask, have I been clear with the Gospel or have I really just kind of been nice to them? And called it evangelism, and now I'm done. Even though we've never actually really talked about Jesus, we should be talking about Jesus long before we start shaking out our garments and and deciding that your blood is on your own head. Paul can claim innocence, he can say he's innocent of their blood in verse 6 because he's been clear with the gospel we also need to make sure that they're rejecting the Gospel and they're not rejecting a jerk. Right? We, we can easily be a jerk. We're called to love, to proclaim Christ, to force them to reject Jesus and not reject a an evangelist who is just being a punk. And with that, Paul's missionary focus shifts from the Jews to the Gentiles. Yes, he was called to that in his conversion. And yes, for that matter, he's, he's preached the Gospel to Jews and Greeks all along the way. But certainly here in Corinth, his focus shifts to the Greeks. And did you notice where the core... Grew? So this first pres, the church that would become first pres of Corinth uh, was initially sort of meeting in the synagogues and that needs a new... Meeting location. And so they start, they they meet in somebody's house. This guy, Titius Justice. He's like, look, if you're looking for a place to have your core group meetings, we can do that here at my house. Which just happens to be right next door to the synagogue. You can imagine the conflict and the pain and the consternation that caused for the Jews and for Paul as well. So they started meeting there in Titius Justice's house. And notice what Luke records for us. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. There are Jews being converted and brought to saving faith in Christ. There are Corinthians, there are Greeks, Gentiles, being converted and brought to saving faith in Christ. Here's the thing. You and I don't control how people react to the Gospel. Now, again, if we're being a jerk and they react to us, that's on us. But if we're being loving and and evangelistic and telling people about Christ and they, they receive Him or they reject Him, you don't get to control that. We don't make that call. Paul was not in charge of Crispus believing, of some of the Corinthians believing, of the fact that many of the Jews reviled him and rejected him and dismissed him. We don't convert people. That's... God's responsibility. We don't change hearts. That's God's responsibility. You and I are called to proclaim Christ, and let God do with them as He sees fit. And then Paul in verses nine and ten gets something that you and I may or may not ever get. In fact, we when he gets in verse nine and ten, we should not expect. Uh, because the Bible's closed, we don't get revelation like this in this way, uh, the way Paul does from God in verses nine and ten. But look at what Paul look at what God says to Paul. Do not be afraid. When you read, do not be afraid. That could, at least in English. That could be a future. That could be a statement about your future. Like, we could read Do Not Be Afraid and think, okay, I'm about to go into something, a situation, a scenario, a setting in which I might be tempted to be afraid. And what God is telling me is, when I get there, don't be afraid. That's not what Luke writes. Luke's Luke's not writing a command about Paul's future. He's writing a command about Paul's present. It's literally, stop Fearing. Believer, be encouraged. This is Paul. He's afraid. And God literally says to him, stop fearing. And with that, you go, oh, Paul's normal. Paul's just like me. I'm just like him. I'm encouraged by that. I'm I'm comforted by that reality. It turns out Paul is human after all. But why shouldn't Paul be afraid? Well, read the rest of of what God tells him. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. You know, God has promised... To be present with His people. You have that exact same promise. That's not a promise for Paul that you and I don't have. Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Peter will write something similar in 1 Peter 5-7 when he urges us to cast our cares on God because God cares for you. Or we read Psalm 23 and He's with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with Me. Or Haggai 1 when God says to His people, I am with you, declares the Lord. Or Genesis 15-17 and when God promises to Abraham a place, a people, and His presence. And you are encouraged because Paul is like you in that he is afraid. And you're encouraged because you are like Paul. You have the exact same promise of God's presence. So um, you're welcome to make fun of me if you like. I can handle it. Um, I'm a soccer fan. Uh, On Saturday mornings, you can pretty much guarantee that I am... Uh, sitting alone in our den watching English Premier League soccer. Um, I don't have a team. I just like soccer. I just So it, it doesn't matter. I just like watching the game. Uh, Liverpool, uh, the Liverpool Football Club in Liverpool, England, uh, has a motto. They needed it yesterday. They lost 3 to nothing to one of the worst teams in the league, but don't get me started. Um, their motto is, you will never... Walk alone. In fact, actually, at the end of the game, I mean, there's like two or three minutes left in the game, and they're losing three to nothing to literally one of the bottom two clubs in all of. And their fans, and it's an away match. There aren't many of their, but their fans are actually chanting it back to the players. You never walk alone. It's really kind of cool. you realize, as a believer, you never walk alone? God's with you. God has promised. And this is not just in sort of that generic, I know God is everywhere sort of way. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians, you actually have the Spirit. God's Spirit living in you as a deposit guaranteeing the security and eternality of your salvation. Believer, you never walk alone. You just became a Liverpool fan, I hope. That's our promise. That's our hope. No, things don't always go exactly the way we want them to. No, that doesn't mean that we don't go through suffering. No, it doesn't mean that we don't have trials. It means that when you're in them, you're not alone. It means that yes, you might get kicked out of Rome and be forced to go live somewhere else. And and you may think that's wrong and just unfair. God has not left you alone. Yes, it might mean that that the, the, the Jews in the synagogue hate you and revile you and therefore you have to meet, find a new place for the, the core group, the church plant in Corinth to meet. And yes, you might be afraid to proclaim the Gospel and you're just not sure how people are going to respond, but that's okay. You're not alone. God is with you. Yes, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we don't walk there alone. Believer, be comforted. By that promise. In fact, the passage ends with Paul experiencing that presence. Sometime later, uh, Gallio, the, the proconsul of Achaia, which is kind of that larger re- region of, of Greece, um, the Jews, and they've done this before, the Jews uh, sort of stir up a riot against Paul and they try to get the Um, civil authorities involved and they try to have a trial and try to get him persecuted and and kind of maybe put to death or kicked out or uh, whatever it is they're trying to do. And so they take this uh, accusation to Galio. And before Paul could even open his mouth, did you notice that? Verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, you can almost picture They've dragged him in to the tribunal's presence and they Gallio, this guy, and Paul goes, takes that breath, starts to form a word, and Gallio goes, I'm not putting up with this. This doesn't have anything to do with our laws. This is your words and your th- No, I'm not, we're not doing this. I'm not playing that game. And 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 you can almost sort of picture Paul go, okay. And walk out He was promised God's presence and in the very next few verses he gets to experience that. God in his sovereignty dismisses this trial before Paul ever has to utter a word. He experiences God's protection in that moment. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. Uh, The first is this uh, conflicts, uh, the struggles that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila uh, go through, they show us that evangelism, uh, that church planting, that church growth isn't always going to be a walk in the park. It's not always going to be smooth sailing it's anything but smooth sailing for them. Not everyone's going to want to listen. Not everyone is going to get converted. Not everyone is going to just come in droves and embrace Christ just because you've been so eloquent and you've said all the right things and answered all their objections. And it's just masses of people. We're not given any of that promise. Not everyone's going to receive Christ, but... Christ will build His church. And even the very gates of hell itself cannot and will not prevail against it. Their struggles also show us that every event of life, um, that God is using every event of life to orchestrate His plans and His purposes for us, for His church, to reach the elect to gather and perfect the saints, to reach the lost, to build and grow his church. You and I are tempted. And in fact, there are many in Christian circles who will tell you you deserve your best life now, your smooth sailing life now, that if you just believed, everything would go swimmingly and you'd never have any trouble whatsoever. The Bible actually tells us that our conflicts are being used by God to accomplish His purposes. You and I are not the main point of the Bible. Jesus and His glory. That's the main point of the Bible. A second, which leads to another application. There's a command over and over again uh, throughout Scripture, and it seems to be that every time someone comes face to face, and you have to put that second face in, in quotes, with God or with the angel of the Lord, the first thing they hear is, do not be afraid. I think that comes up pretty much every time that someone comes face-to-face with God. Believer, don't be afraid. Not because you know everything. Not because you have all the answers. Not because you're that great and strong. But because you never walk alone. Because God Himself is with you. We take comfort in the command not to be afraid. Have you ever thought about this? You realize if God is not sovereign, if God is not the king and ruler of every molecule anywhere ever in all of creation, He can't tell you, don't be afraid. If God's not sovereign, He can't say that. Why not? Because He doesn't know. Because He's not in control. The only reason that God can tell us don't be afraid is because He holds it all. In other words, every time we read the command do not be afraid, we're reminded that God really is in control. Those words alone. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Stop fearing. Those words tell us that God is sovereign over everything that you and I face. That He really has for ordained whatsoever comes to pass to quote from the shorter catechism which i think was last week maybe a couple of weeks ago whatever comes whether suffering or deliverance from the arrest we can face it because it's all in god's hands because we are in god's hands Which leads to another application. If God is sovereign over everything, then He's sovereign over the response of unbelievers to the Gospel. Their reaction, their response to the Gospel of Jesus Christ is outside of your control. You and I are called to evangelize. You and I are not called to change unbelievers. We don't have that authority. If they react harshly, if they respond in anger, if they respond in hatred, that is outside of our control. If they respond in faith, that is outside of our control. The glory is not ours. The blame is not ours. We talk about Christ. Their response is in God's hands. Another application. I should have said this a few minutes ago. As we endure trials, as we endure suffering in this life, if if that suffering is used for our good and God's glory, perhaps we should pray less for freedom from it and more for learning from it if that suffering is in God's hands, maybe we shouldn't shouldn't so focus on being freed from that suffering. Maybe we should instead focus on praying that God would teach us what He was trying to teach us through it for His honor and for His glory. That doesn't mean you don't pray, deliver me from this trial. But it means you add and mean equally. And if that's not Your will, help me to grow from it, to learn from it, to understand You more because of it. And finally, let me make this application. Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Because if the answer is no, then as Paul says, your blood is on your own heads. Christ is offered to you in the Gospel. He's freely offered to you in the Gospel. The Gospel says you're a sinner and in need of the saving, cleansing blood of Christ if you'll trust in Him and Him alone. Not in your goodness. Not in I try harder. Not in I'm better than I used to be or even better than the people around me. You trust in I'm not really good at all. Jesus is perfect. His blood was shed when mine should have been. I trust in Him as my Savior. Are you trusting in Christ this morning? If not, would you? Would you run to Him even now? Run to the cross and there find forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your grace and mercy extended to us in Christ. We thank you too that even our trials, our suffering, our difficulties are in your hands. And for that matter, so are we. And those trials, those sufferings can't snatch us out of it. They won't cause you to drop us. They won't make you forget us. Instead, would you use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? Uh, To love you more, to know and understand your purposes more. And Father, we pray that you would use us to reach the lost, to gather and perfect your saints. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.